0: Good evening, everyone. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Although you look like sheep scattered without a shepherd, you have a shepherd here, all right. Okay, we'll go right into our study tonight, our Bible study on the discipline in the local church. We are picking up from where we left off last time. Now, uh, we're picking up from... uh, a study several weeks ago still talking about discipline in the church and this sort of excursus has come about because of the focus of church discipline in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. We've given three messages on discipline. This is the fourth one. And you recall that having introduced the important doctrine of church discipline in chapter 5, Paul. Begins to give instruction as to how the church should maintain its purity or its holiness. And he is doing so because of the presence of an individual in the local church who was involved in incest. And the church was not doing anything about it. And in fact, they were actually glorying and gloating in the idea that they were so gracious to allow a sinner like that to be in the church. And Paul says that shouldn't be. And he gives instructions concerning the need for church discipline. Now, we have looked at the causes for church discipline, some of them, not all, but some of them, the basis for church discipline, and the procedures for church discipline. This evening I want to focus on the attitude that should be present when church discipline is administered. In other words, if sin is reproved with harshness and bitterness, the reproof itself then becomes sin. In other words, if the leaders of the church do not handle church discipline according to the word of God, especially as it comes to attitude, they could be committing sin in trying to discipline somebody who is committing sin. And of course, that just makes the situation more complex. And so, if the attitude is simply to throw the person out of the church, this is far from the biblical perspective. We have to be reminded of the fact that it's not natural for the flesh to do anything but strive under these conditions to project itself. In other words, we want to get even. We want to show that person the consequences of his actions in a negative way rather than a gracious way. One of the things I have come to realize the older I get as a believer is that most of our churches tend to be legalistic rather than to exhibit grace. We say we are preaching grace and teaching grace, but we don't act in gracious ways. We act from a legalistic way. You see, and I think Paul, although he's very firm in what is to be done, he always underlines the fact that grace should be the underlining attitude. The Lord is never honored by fleshly behavior in the church, of course, and such actions must always be avoided, especially when it comes to this important item of church administration. So, what I'd like to do now, because of the time lapse that we've had between our messages, I want to do a sort of a summary of the procedures for church discipline. I want to begin with a statement, a summary statement. The church is to act as the arbitrator in disputes among its members that they cannot personally resolve. That's a biblical principle. The church should act as an arbitrator in disputes amongst its members that they cannot personally resolve. If the offender refuses to listen to the church, he or she is to be regarded as an unbeliever. In other words, as though the person is not a Christian. Why is that? Because he's acting like a non-Christian if you don't obey the Word of God. And one of the things in Scripture that a lot of people don't like, church members, is that you should obey your leaders, you see. And so when a Christian refuses to obey the authority that has been placed over them by God himself, that person, the Bible says, should be regarded as an unbeliever. Strong statement, but study your scriptures, you'll see that it's there. Now, of course, this is always implying that the church leaders are godly men, men who are controlled by the Spirit of God and who know the scriptures and are acting in, in that fashion. As representatives of the church, the pastors are undoubtedly the ones who do the actual investigating in investigation in these cases. And if necessary, they are the ones to determine the nature of discipline based on the word of God, which is to be administered. And if the offender refuses to respond positively to the counsel and admonition, then discipline takes place. Remember this, discipline does not take place until the offender refuses to take counsel from the leaders. Up that time, it's all counsel, it's all discipling, and all of that. But when it comes to the point now that the, the person says, nope, I will not do it, I will not obey the Scriptures, I will not do what Scripture clearly teaches, that person is to be regarded as an unbeliever. And then church discipline is put into practice. Now, such discipline, especially if it involves excommunication from the fellowship of the local body, is only to be exercised in the official or formal gathering of the church. This is not something that the pastors do in the privacy of their office. If a church member is put out of the church the fellowship of the church, it has to be done according to Scripture in the gathering of the church. Now, I don't mean necessarily the public meeting when when you have a mixture of Christians and non-Christians. I'm talking about when a special meeting is called by the membership of the church, And then the case is presented and the reason for it is done. And then another final appeal is made to the individual. Will you respond to the word of God? Will you repent? The person says no. Then the excommunication is to be done. Now, let me give you a diagram that will help you to get an overview of the entire process. Now, we've talked about it before, but I want you to have it in your mind so you could be able to run through it easily. Now, there are three aspects to church discipline. First, there's what I call the personal or the individual discipline. Then there is the mutual discipline. And then there is the official or church discipline. Let's consider then, first of all, personal discipline. Here is how it begins. You become aware of sin in your own life. This is an important point here. Church discipline always begins with the individual or the process. And if this beginning point is dealt with properly, there's no need to go further. But let's say you become aware of personal sin in your life. What do you do? You deal with it. You deal with it yourself immediately. This involves three steps. First, self-examination. This is the instruction that we have in First Corinthians 11 about coming around the Lord's table. Let a man what? Examine himself. That's where you begin. And the examination is not to prevent you, as I always teach, from participating in the Lord's Supper, but to allow you to do so. In other words, to take, you are to examine yourself so you can keep short accounts with God. Take care of it, and that's it, between you and God. Confession is necessary. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. Then there's a change in behavior. Of course, when you ask forgiveness, you acknowledge sin, you don't go back and you do the same thing. You change your behavior. And of course, we might be even put a fourth point here, and that's retribution. There's something that you may have to put right in different ways. But the point is, you deal with it yourself. You don't go to anyone, you don't rate anybody, for anybody to come to you. You deal with sin in your life, you confess it, and it's done with. This is why I always like to emphasize the importance of the Lord's Supper being done regularly. Because if we observe the Lord's Supper as the way it is presented in Scripture, we'll be examining ourselves before God at least once or twice a week, a month, whatever. Depends on how much you do it. Now, if you disregard dealing with it yourself, though, Others may reprove you, because the scripture says, and we'll see this, that if we are aware of sin in somebody else's life, we have the responsibility of going to that person. We have the responsibility, and by the way, if you don't do it, you're sinning. I'm sinning. You see how important it is for us to deal with things? God regards the failure to do it as sin. Others may reprove you if you do not judge yourself. The church may discipline you as a result. May, I say. But you can be sure of one thing. If believers do not uh, discipline you or confront you, if the church do not discipline you, you can be sure of one thing. God will discipline you. God does not allow His people to get away with rebellion. He doesn't. He will. He will. You might get away from Christians, you might get away from the church, but you will not get away from the head of the church. That's for sure. But secondly, you might have sinned against someone. What do you do when you've sinned against someone? Well, you deal with it, and you deal with it immediately. And the process you're all aware of, Jesus himself taught it in Matthew 5 as well as Matthew 18. Go to the person. If somebody has sinned against you you don't come to the church first or you don't go to somebody else first you go to that person first to deal with it you confess your sin if you have sinned against that person you ask for forgiveness and you make retribution if necessary that's how we are to deal with sin if we've sinned against someone you go to the person you confess to sin and you ask forgiveness and you make whatever retribution is necessary. If you do that, the matter stops there. That's what I call personal discipline. But the second area of discipline, and then this is not dealt with in this fashion, is what I call mutual discipline. Mutual discipline. Two aspects here. You've been sinned against. Somebody has sinned against you. Now, we just looked at the one when you sinned against someone. Now, you have been sinned against, somebody has sinned against you. What do you do? You deal with it. You don't wait for the other person to deal with it. You deal with it. You go to the person privately and reprove that person. These are the words of Jesus Christ. You go to that person and you reprove that person privately. You confront them with sin, in other words. Now, if he listens to you or if he repents, you have won your brother, Jesus says. In other words, reconciliation takes place, forgiveness takes place. That ends the matter. It's finished. But if he does not listen, you can take two steps. One is, and this is a little difficult one, complex actually, you can cover it with love. You know, Peter says, that love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, sometimes in certain cases when we don't have to press it, we have love cover it. Now that's a hard one; it's a very difficult one. But it depends, I believe, on the issues. Or you confront this person who sinned against you with witnesses. You take someone else along with you to confront this person concerning sin against you. If he listens to you along with these two witnesses, if he repents, again, you've won that person. Reconciliation takes place. Forgiveness takes place. But now what happens if he does not listen? That's when Jesus says, you take it to the assembly. You take it to the church. And this is where the third level of church discipline comes in. Church discipline. This is where the pastors become involved, the church leadership, and where either reproof after counsel or along with counsel is given. The person is confronted with a sin, the issue is dealt with, and to make sure that the person has sinned, that's the whole idea. Now, if the person listens to the leaders of the church, if he repents of his sin, he is to be forgiven. He is to be restored to fellowship. And love is to be reaffirmed. Matter stops there. But he does not listen. Now this is where we should have more time to deal with this because there are different ways you deal with different situations. But I've sort of combined them here to summarize it and some other time we'll go through the other details. But if the person does not listen, here are some of the procedures the Bible tells us we should do. First, the person should be marked publicly. In other words, if there's someone around and we know that they are sinning and they would not listen to counsel, you could mark that person. That person is a disobedient person, he's a rebellious person. Now that comes in context, particularly when it comes to a person living a disorderly life or teaching false doctrine. You mock that person. You're watching, says now, watch that guy. You look at what he said. Alright? See if he's gonna say that same thing he said about Jesus Christ or whatever it is. You mock that person. Now, this is what scripture teaches. For some of us, this is foreign stuff. Some people say this is almost cultic. But it's biblical. What makes the difference is the attitude and the way it is ministered. Then there's some things that need to be shunned socially. Paul says you shouldn't even eat with that person. Now in context it could have to do with the Lord's Supper. In the context also it could have the idea of carrying on social lifestyle with him. There's a person that you know is living in sin, but you are dealing with him on a day-by-day basis. You go to breakfast with him, you go to lunch with him, you go to dinner with him, you do all kinds of things with him, but you don't reprove him of a sin. Paul says, no, no, you don't carry on an active social life with a person that you know is sinning. I'm talking about a Christian now, not a non-Christian. Paul teaches that we could fellowship with a non-believer doing certain things, but we cannot fellowship with a believer who's doing the same things. Paul teaches that, 1 Corinthians 5. You see? Then, our next aspect of this, he is to be excluded spiritually. This is what we call excommunication. This is what Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians 5. In other words, he is put out of the fellowship of the church, and as we saw, and the protection from the devil uh, when he's put outside of the fellowship of the church. And we emphasize when we preached on this last time, the fact that there is a protection, a spiritual protection for God's people in the fellowship of the church. When a person is in fellowship with God and fellowship with God's people, there's a protection around them that Satan cannot overcome. We don't understand this or realize this so often. That's why Paul says, hey, if he doesn't listen to reproof of the the pastors, he is to be put outside of the fellowship of the church for a reason so the devil could get at him. That means to that point the devil couldn't get at him. And so you see, the fellowship, uh, the people of God is important, but we don't look at it that way. You know, I was thinking about this today. It amazes me. People will come to a church. They go through a long process to join the church. They get a little mad or angry about something, they leave. They don't write a letter. They don't come tell them why you're leaving. They just pick up and go. Isn't that something? It's amazing. It's amazing. How would how we, how we God fellowship with, with the church or the people of God? You go through a long process to leave, to come in, but when you want to go, you just walk out. No letter, no nothing, no explanation or anything at all. It's amazing the little understanding we have of what it means to be in fellowship with the people of God and what the church really is. Just amazing. And then finally, the attitude that person is to be regarded as an unbeliever. And this is Jesus Christ himself. Now remember now, Jesus is the head of the church. He isn't just somebody who sits by to give you a little suggestion now and then. He's the one who tells you how it is to be done. And he said if there is continued rebellion and there is no acceptance of, uh, of reproof or counsel on the part uh, of by leaders and, and they reject it, that person is to be regarded as though he is not a Christian. What it means? That in order to win him, you got to evangelize him again. You start all over with re-evangelization. That's the process here. Now, outside of the church, we are subject to the judgment of God. That's very clear in 1 Corinthians 5 as well as 1 Corinthians 11. We are exposed to Satan's attack. And according to Peter, we are open to a multitude of sins. You just go downhill from here. This is why I really want us to emphasize this to our people here. If you get in trouble, please don't stay away from the church. That's the time you should be involved with the church members and the leaders. And unfortunately, one of the areas that this normally happens and we lose a lot of young women is when they become pregnant outside of marriage. They stay away from church to go someplace else. Now the man comes around, but not the lady, not the woman. She stays away. And that's the time that she needs the love and the compassion and the care of the church, you see. But unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way. And that's a terrible thing. Somehow we have to change the attitude of our people. We have to demonstrate that, hey, regardless of what sin you may fall into, and it's possible for any of us to fall into it, you're still going to be loved and accepted here, unless you deliberately and continually reject godly counsel. That's a different story. Let me go quickly through the attitude that we should have in administering church discipline. But now, I want you to understand that this is a vital doctrine in the church, a doctrine that we should be observing. And we do it in different ways, but it should be observed. All right. First, as far as the administration of church discipline is uh, concerned, it is to be done, first of all, with gentleness. This is what Paul says in Galatians 6:1. Brothers, if a man is trapped in some sin, you who are spiritual should restore restore him gently. That's a wonderful passage of scripture. We dealt with that before. The word restore here is used in the sense of readjusting or resetting of a dislocated bone. Uh, The same word is used in the Gospel of Matthew for mending nets, putting nets back into their former condition. That's the same idea, the person who's been trapped in sin. He's talking about a person who's caught red-handed. he got no excuse. You know he sinned, all right? It's not that he was planning to sin, but he did it, and he was caught in it. How do you restore that person? Paul says you do it with gentleness. You handle him as though you are replacing a dislocated bone in the body, as it were. The sinning believer who's out of joint is a member of the local body. When he sins, he is to be restored with gentleness to avoid unnecessary pain, both to himself and to the rest of the body. Isn't that right? I mean, if you're trying to put a wrist, an arm, or whatever it is, back in place in your body, I mean, you just don't do it roughly. You don't want any pain yourself, and you don't want to give any pain to any other part of the body, right? That's how we ought to do it with gentleness. But involved with that, we also do it, secondly, with an attitude of humility. It says, but watch yourself, because you may also be tempted. You could be tempted the same way that person was. No mocking of sin in the brother can fail to remind all believers of their own frailty. Nor can it fail to evoke concern from the church regarding the possibility of failure toward the erring or the sinning member. We need to pray for him or her, and we need to set before that person an example of godliness. In other words, any time we look at somebody who has sinned, you have to really say, there but for the grace of God. We should do it with humility, because we ourselves could be in the same situation. It could happen unexpectedly. So it must be done with gentleness, so no unnecessary pain is caused. We should do it with humility. Recognizing that we could be the next person to be readjusted. But thirdly, it is to be done with love. Second Corinthians 2 4, Paul says, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Paul was stressing and emphasizing the love he has for these Corinthians. Because, you see, they were involved now in committing sin themselves. It appears that this person who was committing incest in the first epistle of Corinthians, that in Second Corinthians, that person repented, but the church didn't want to receive him back. It was just the opposite. When he sinned, they didn't want to... him out. And Paul had to write this forceful letter. And so they did. Now the person has repented. And now they're afraid to put him back. And Paul is feeling pain for the people who are not receiving him and for the person who had sinned and repented. Paul is expressing pain and love at the same time. And so Paul's own attitude toward the Corinthians who at first failed to discipline the sinning brother reflects also the attitude which is to characterize the local church in administering discipline. This is what he says. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears not to grieve you but to let you know the depth of my love for you. What Paul is saying is that this same concept of love is to be demonstrated in receiving a brother or sister back into fellowship. You don't keep that person out of fellowship if he has repented of a sin. Paul reflects the same attitude in 2 Thessalonians when he's talking about discipline with an unruly brother, an unruly sister. He says you should not regard him as an enemy, but you regard him what? As a brother. You see? as a member of the body of Christ. We're dealing with family members. Before three, church discipline is always to be done without impartiality. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.20, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. That's a powerful passage of Scripture. Immediately after instructing Timothy regarding the discipline of elders in the local church, Paul very pointedly commands, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. That's in the context of disciplining pastors. He talks about that. Pastors, when they sin, of course, you have to demonstrate that they've sinned by bringing witnesses. He says, do not lay hands suddenly upon anyone. In context, it means upon pastors or elders who have been charged by sin with a congregation member. He says, do not judge them too readily. Make sure you have the proof behind it. But when you are at the point of judging or, or excommunicating that person or dealing with it, you do it publicly. And he says, "You rebuke them sharply." And what he's saying is here, and that does, he says, then that doesn't matter who the pastor is. He could be the senior pastor. He could be the youth pastor. He could be any kind of pastor. No impartiality. Then you apply to the congregation. You don't say, well, I'm not going to judge that person. I'm not going to discipline that person because he gives a lot of money to the church. Or that person is so needed in this ministry. Or he's been in the church a long time. And therefore, because he has this kind of influence over all of the other members, although he has committed sin, we are not going to discipline him. Paul says that's sin. We are not to show impartiality when it comes to church discipline. Anyone who sins and does not repent is to be disciplined by the people of God. But fifth, church discipline is also to be administered very prayerfully. This, of course, as we say, goes without saying. One of my favorite Bible uh, scholars puts it this way. His name is Saucy. He says, and I quote him, After all, effective and true discipline can only be carried out in an attitude of prayer. The Lord clearly establishes the authority of the church to discipline upon his presence among those praying in his name. The church has the right to pass judgment on its members only because it is the body where Christ dwells and promises to reveal himself through prayerful seeking. End of quote. Prayer should saturate the entire process from beginning to end. When anybody brings any kind of accusation against another member to the church, it should be bathed in prayer, saturated in prayer from beginning to end. But finally, church discipline must always be done with the purpose of offering immediate forgiveness for the repentant member. The repentant member. Notice what Paul says. Now, you ought to forgive and comfort him. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about this man who is committing incest with his father's wife in First Corinthians 5. This person has repented, and he wants to come back into fellowship. But the church don't want to let him come back into the fellowship. So Paul says, now you ought to forgive and comfort him. See, this person now is beginning to feel the pain of being separated from being out of fellowship with the people of God. He feels the pain. The member is in pain spiritually. And Paul says, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. When the person repents from his sin, the person has responded to godly counsel from the elders and repentance takes place, sin is acknowledged, that person should be forgiven and immediately restored to fellowship. That's Paul's teaching. And he says here, reaffirm your love to him and it's the idea of a public affirmation. The same way you excommunicate a person publicly, you are to reaffirm him publicly. One of the first things I was involved in when I became pastor here was something like this. I know some of you early members remember this. And we had the joy of having quote unquote the offended member stand before the congregation and acknowledge what they've done, ask for forgiveness, and so on. It was a beautiful thing. See, it demonstrates what Paul is talking about here, the need to reaffirm a love for repentant sinner. And so discipline by the local church is only biblical if it includes readiness to forgive the repentant offender. For after all, this is the major objective of discipline as far as the person is concern is to bring him back into fellowship discipline is never to punish only God can punish discipline is to correct discipline is to bring back into the way that's the purpose is the purpose of discipline is to glorify God by restoring the repentant sinner back into fellowship with him and the people of God Paul warns then about the spiritual danger entailed in having an unforgiving attitude, an unforgiving spirit toward a repentant sinner. He says, now you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. I say again, my heart's desire is for Calvary Bible Church and the members of the incredible body of Christ here to be characterized by grace rather than by law. Grace rather than legalism It's always best to err if we do on the side of grace rather than law. Amen? We don't try to get back at an individual. We try to get them back into fellowship with God. If we don't handle this properly, church discipline, and do not receive a repentance in the back. Paul says to leave him in Satan's realm after he had repented would allow Satan to get at him in a way that he would not be able to do so if he was in the fellowship of God's people, thereby giving the devil rather than God the victory. And so an attitude of ready forgiveness is essential to godly discipline on the part of, of the local church. That's the attitude. We've seen the process of church discipline. We've seen the necessity. We've seen the objective. We've seen the purpose. Procedure and so on of church discipline. May God help us to be faithful to his word to keep the church holy, to keep it pure by being ready to administer loving discipline when necessary. Amen? Father, thank you for your word so clear. Thank you for your spirit who enlightens us. Thank you for the fact that he also enables us to put into practice what he teaches from his word that he has written. Grant that we might be holy people because we deal with sin every day. We confess our sins. so We can be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And as we live... We live with the attitude that the blood of Jesus Christ continually, continually cleanses us from all sin. Thank you, thank you for his sacrificial death on our behalf. And all of God's people said, Amen.